Well, good morning. Merry Christmas. Does it seem like Christmas? Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, it's, it's just weird, isn't it? This whole year with COVID has just kind of changed everything. So uh, let's establish from the start. COVID has not changed that a Savior has been born. Amen? And it has not changed that whoever will call upon his name will be saved. Amen? Okay, so uh, in the midst of worship service with mask, in the midst of the fact that gatherings are changed, we, our youngest last night got engaged, so six out of six are headed toward marriage, uh, and, but we had a party outside even though it was cold because you can't have 35 people in the house. Well, you can, but then they accuse you of being a mass spreader. So I realize everything is different except a Savior has been born and all who call upon him will be saved. That's why we were worshiping this morning. So this morning we're going to continue to look at the life of Joseph. Not the Joseph that's part of the Christmas story, but the Joseph in the book of Genesis because he has been for us an example of what it means to trust in God in whatever circumstances we're in, to trust him always, to trust him in temptation, to trust him in adversity. It's been such a perfect series for these days. And it is a perfect time to, this morning, learn from Joseph what it means to trust God to forgive. Raise your hand if you've heard the expression, sometimes you're the bug, sometimes you're the windshield. You ever heard that expression? If you've never heard it, first time I heard it, I thought, now that's good. Because I love visuals, and that's just very visual. Especially when I've done some trips to South Florida, and you get there, and it's like there's been a mass murder on my hood and my grill. It's like, wow. Some major smushage all over the front of my car. Sometimes you're the bug. You get smushed. Sometimes you're the smusher. Right? In other words, when we talk about trusting God to forgive, an unavoidable reality in life is that you will be wronged. People are going to sin against you. And an unavoidable reality in life is that you are going to wrong and you're going to sin against. Yes? If you have sinned against somebody, let me see your hand. If you have been sinned against, keep your hand up. All right. So those are unavoidable realities. The question that I hope you'll engage with me this morning in this is, what are you going to do with that? Will you ever, could you ever, find some way in your heart that you as the bug would forgive? The one who got smashed, the one who's been wronged against, that you could forgive. Because it's unavoidable that you're going to be sinned against. The question will be, will you forgive. So let me jump back into again the life of Joseph and just acknowledge when it comes to Joseph, he had lots of wrong done to him. He had been the bug on lots of occasions. This is all by way of review from what we've seen in his life so so far. When his father favored him, he was doing him no favor. He was setting him up for a lot of hurt. So, wrong done, real quick, four examples of Joseph being the bug. His father favored him. His brothers, they hated him, and they sold him into slavery. They literally sold their brother into slavery. That's how much they hated him. His employer imprisoned him for a crime he did not commit. That's some serious smashage. And... As an inmate, he helps a fellow inmate who promises, I'll help you when I get out. And then he forgets him. My point simply is this. 
When we look at the life of Joseph, we're looking at someone uh, who had wrong done to him. Likely, without minimizing the wrong that you've experienced in your life, likely in more significant, severe ways than you and I have ever had wrong done to us. But all of us have known the hurt from a friend or a family member, from the person that we least expected it. And sometimes it's just hard to get over. And some, listening right now, you haven't gotten over it. You still live with the impact of how you've been wronged, how you've been just squashed by somebody else. And so we want to look at Joseph because he's been there, probably in ways more significant than most of us. When we're wronged by people in significant ways, we may be prone to ask this question, where was God? I I thought he would protect me from this. And repeatedly, and we've looked at this every week, if you've been with us, and I won't ever get tired of looking at this, where was God in the midst of all that was happening in Joseph's life? We said it, where, where was God? He was with him. Genesis chapter 39, verse 2, it says the Lord was with Joseph. And it says that very specifically, do you remember, right after it says that he was sold as a slave. In the midst of that wrong, the Lord was with him. The Lord had not forgotten him, as we just declared in song. The Lord has not forgotten. The Lord was with him. In Genesis 39, 21, the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him. Do you know why it says that? It says that right after he's imprisoned for something that he didn't do. It's not that the Lord forgotten, the Lord had abandoned him, the Lord was with him, and in a strange way, don't miss this, in a strange way, was extending kindness to him. Now, I don't think that in the moment, Joseph thought, Lord, I'm just, just reveling in your kindness towards me. But there is, what we'll see from Joseph, a recognition that in some of the greatest wrongs done to him, the Lord was with him. Don't miss it. The Lord was with him. Because this will be the foundation for how you deal with the wrong done to you. Is the Lord with you? And is he working through that wrong? Is the Lord extending kindness to you? It makes a difference. What we believe in those moments when people wrong us. Because we can, and I think you'll relate to this, we can be so angry with them. So hurt by what's been done to us that we completely forget God in this. Because it doesn't seem like when wrong is being done to us that God can be anywhere in the midst of this. But repeatedly, the scripture declares in the midst of the wrong done to Joseph, God is with him and God is working even in the wrong. God is working. The difference that makes gets revealed in Genesis 45. So I want us to, we're going to look at two sections this morning in the life of Joseph. First, in Genesis 45. So if you've not turned there in your Bible, let me invite you to turn there right now. Because what happens between Genesis 39, 21, when he is imprisoned, and Genesis 45 is this. The Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, has a dream. But nobody, none of his advisors can actually interpret his dream for him until a man who had been in prison with Joseph goes, I know a man who can interpret dreams. 
And Pharaoh said, bring him to me. So they clean Joseph up. They bring him to, to Pharaoh. And Joseph interprets the Pharaoh's dream. And watch this. Joseph, excuse me, Pharaoh says to him, I don't think there's another person in all of Egypt who has a divine spirit in him like this man. And so he takes a prisoner who is Jewish and the text tells us that, that Egyptians don't even eat with Hebrews. That's how much they despise them. He takes a Hebrew prisoner and he makes him second in command of all of Egypt. That's the work of God. And watch this. Joseph never becomes second in command unless his brothers sell him into slavery and unless he's put in prison for something that he didn't do. Can God use the wrong that people have done to you? Does it make the wrong right? Yes or no? No, let's, don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying it makes the wrong right. I'm saying it makes it clear that God is bigger than even the greatest wrong ever done. He is working and he is with. And so he interprets the dream. He's second in command. And the dream was about a famine coming. And so Joseph, leading the charge in a time of prosperity, stores food for this famine that will hit the whole region, including his family. And so his brothers, directed by their dad, come to Egypt looking for food. And they show up in front of Joseph. And he immediately recognizes them. But they have no clue who he is. And you can't blame him. It's not just that they would have, he probably would have looked differently dressed as the second in command of all of Egypt. It's that they sold him as a slave. They would never ever imagine that that was their brother. So they're clueless as they beg for food from him. And he puts them through a, a number of unusual tests that I'm gonna take, to, take time to go through. But they go through these tests and they peer before him multiple times until in Genesis 45, the text tells us Joseph can't take it anymore. He can't take it anymore that those are his brothers and he knows it and they don't. And so he sends everybody, all the Egyptians out of the, the court and it's just him and his brothers. And now look in your text. It says in verse four of Genesis 45, Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. They have no idea why. Please come closer to me. And they came closer and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Can you imagine their faces? Can you imagine their, what? No, Oh, ah, you know, all this processing in that moment. My, my daughter who got engaged, she was like, when, when David got on his knee, she was like, no, 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 no. And I was like, really? That was your first reaction? No, no, no. And she said, because I thought he was just, it was a fake proposal. And I had told him, that's not funny. Don't ever do that to me. And so she thinks it's not going to real because, uh, well, I don't have all the time for the story. <clears throat> but she did say yes then. They can't imagine. Their minds are blowing. And then when he says, you're my brothers who did what? Sold me into Egypt. Uh-oh. So what's he say? Verse five. Now be grieved and afraid for yourselves because God has sent you here so that you may pay for the wrong you've done for me. Okay. If you're confused, 
That's actually not what the Bible says. I made that verse up. This is what, if you're really in the text and in the story and you understand, this is what you expect him to say. You expect him to go, I never thought I'd get my chance. But God has made the way. Now, we laugh at that, but I meet people all the time who put God's name on their desire to get something, to do something. That's not of the Lord. But they interpret circumstances. And how easy would it have been for Joseph to interpret circumstances? You know, I never thought I'd get my chance. And I had resolved that with the Lord. But the Lord brought you here. And it's going to be sweet to skin you alive. Or to do whatever you would do to somebody who sold you into slavery. But that's not what he says. You know what he says? Do not be grieved. Not do be grieved. Do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. See, he doesn't minimize the wrong done to him. Don't be grieved. Why? For God sent me before you to preserve life. Do not miss this. What Joseph says and does is rooted in a conviction that God is bigger than the wrong. Don't miss that. God sent me here before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve life for you, you, a remnant in the earth, and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. Three times in his opening introduction, he's going, you think it was you. You think it was you. And what you did, so wrong. (laughs) But God was with me and God was, God was actually working even through your wrong. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord all of his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. You made me a slave. God made me a ruler. God was with me. God was working. And so what we see when his brothers come knocking, as we see the totally unexpected, we see him bless them and help them instead of taking revenge. See, when wrong is done to us, maybe the last thing in our mind is we're going to bless the person that's wronged us. We're going to help the person that has wronged us. You may go, I want to take revenge, but I'm very spiritual and I don't. Now listen, what we see in Joseph, in trusting God in our wrong, is more than not doing something. It's more than not taking revenge. It's not taking revenge and blessing them and helping them. Maybe you know the words of Jesus. Bless those who curse you. Can you pause for a moment and and, and think about your own life right now? Those who have wronged you, those who have hurt you, not minimizing her wrong, not minimizing what they have done, not trying to make it right. How have you responded? Most of us respond based on what we really believe. Do you believe that God was even greater than their wrong? When we do, it doesn't make their wrong right. It changes how we react to them. We don't have to pay them back and we don't just have to step back and go, hey, uh, I'm not going to do what I really want to. 
we actually take a step towards. We help and we bless. Now, don't miss it. His actions were based on four things that he repeats in the text. First, he acknowledges, you deserve punishment. You sold me into slavery. That was wrong. Forgiveness is never minimizing the wrong. When someone comes to you and says, please forgive me, so often we're like, hey, it's no big deal. That's not the way we handle. When when we seek forgiveness, we're acknowledging it was wrong. And when someone seeks forgiveness from us, don't minimize, acknowledge what you did hurt me. But, but he says, God sent me. God was working. To do what? To preserve life. And not only to preserve your life, to provide for you. He does what he does because he believes what he believes. Don't miss that. How we respond to wrong done to us will reveal what we really believe about God and how he works. Now, if it hadn't become clear to you yet why we stayed in Genesis for Christmas, don't miss this. What Joseph says to his brothers is what Jesus says to you and me. This study, for me, as I've gone through it and now sharing it with you, I've never seen Jesus so clearly as in Genesis 45. What Joseph says to his brothers, you deserve punishment. God sent me to preserve life and to provide for you is exactly what Jesus says to you and to me. You deserve punishment, but God sent me to preserve your life and to provide for you. Believe that? Listen, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son. This is what we're celebrating at Christmas. That he so loved us that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What do we deserve? We deserve punishment. We deserve to perish. We deserve eternal condemnation. We deserve the wrath of God. But God sent his son to preserve our life and to provide for us. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, he paid our debt. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What Joseph said to his brothers is what Jesus says to you. So I I don't know if you're taking notes or not, but if you've written all this down, Make sure you write beside that in big, bold, circled letters, Jesus. And right below that, grace. Because what Joseph says to his brothers is, you expect me to pay you back, but I'm not. That's called grace. It's giving someone what they don't deserve. And that's what Jesus has done for us. He has paid a debt that was ours. See, if you owe a debt, the only way it's going to go away is if you pay it or if somebody else pays it for you. And because we could not, Christ paid it for us. Joseph 
is a phenomenal picture of Jesus. Trusting God to forgive. Grace. Now, do you think his brothers could believe it? Can you imagine the conversation afterwards? Oh, wow. Didn't see that one coming. <laughs> see, if you, if you are listening right now and you're going, yeah, that makes sense. I get it. No, you don't then. Grace is that sort of thing that we, we can never get past going, that's, that's almost too good to be true. And what have we been taught growing up? If it's too good to be true, it's too good to be true. In other words, it's not. Until we understand what God has done for us in Jesus, that's just too good to be true, but it's, it's true. He paid our penalty. He took our punishment. We deserve his wrath, but we got his kindness. Listen, grace is so amazing, it's actually hard to believe and hard to receive. Can I say that again? Grace is so amazing, it's actually, when we really understand it, it's hard to believe and then even harder to receive. Can I show that to you in the text? Turn to Genesis 50. This is the second text I want us to focus on this morning. Genesis 45, he reveals himself and he says, I forgive you. Now, did he use those exact words? Now, did he forgive them? Yeah, he did exactly what someone does who forgives. He doesn't give them what they deserve. He doesn't punish them. He blesses them. He helps them. He serves them. And I hope you heard that. Because sometimes we say, oh, I forgive you. But we refuse to help, bless, or serve. And then we need to ask ourselves, did we really forgive? Or did we just not punish? Do you see the difference? Forgiveness is more than going from negative to neutral. It's going from negative to neutral to positive. You tracking? He forgives them. But that's hard to believe and even harder to receive. So in Genesis 50, here's what happens between 45 and 50. Joseph sends the brothers home to get dad and the entire family. 70 of them come back to Egypt. And they're given a section of Egypt called Goshen to live in. And there, they not only survive the famine, they thrive and they prosper. For 17 years, 17 years, they live as a family in Egypt being provided for instead of perishing. And it all seems like a Disney movie. And then dad dies. And when dad dies, we find out how hard it is to really believe and receive grace. Because when dad dies, his brothers come to him. Verse 15, Genesis 50. I hope you'll look at it. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? Now, for 17 years, he hasn't. Why are they suddenly concerned that the hammer's about to fall? Because they think, ugh. This has been too good to be true. Maybe it's not really true. Maybe it's just been Joseph biding his time until dad dies because he didn't want to hurt dad by me doing to my brothers what they deserve. So now that he's dead, there's hell to pay. That's what they think. 
So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father charged before he died saying, they, they came up with a quote. Hey, in case dad didn't mention this to you, buddy, here's what he said. This is important. Don't miss it. You shall say to Joseph, please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Anybody think dad actually told the brothers that? No, not a chance. They simply make that up for what reason? They don't, yeah, because they don't believe grace can really be true. That somebody could actually forgive you and not make you pay. They don't believe it. So they make this junk up. And don't miss it. When Joseph hears it, how's he respond? Did you see? I, I took the last part out of verse 17. Looking at what's it finished with? Joseph wept. Any idea why? I think I know why. Why do you weep? Because for 17 years, he had demonstrated I forgive you, I forgive you, I'm not going to repay. And he suddenly realizes they've never believed me. They've never been really willing to go. Thank you. They just thought I'd been delaying. You know what they, he weeps, he weeps because the reaction to his grace is I just can't believe it's true. They don't believe him. Demonstrated by the lie they tell. They don't believe Joseph. Just like some of us don't believe Jesus. Oh, we believe him, but we don't really believe him. Because there are circumstances that happen in our lives that then we go, "Uh uh-oh, the hammer's gonna fall. God's gonna get us now. Have you never thought that? Ah, it's just been a delay. But grace, too good to be true. You know what they really believe? Look at verse 18. What they say to him is, we're your servants. Meaning what? We can't undo what we do, what we did, but but we'll be your slaves. We'll, we'll, do our, we'll give the rest of our years to pay you back. Which is what so many of us think we need to do for God. We think we have to pay for our wrong. We have to do a rough right. Because grace is just too good to be true. But don't miss this. I hope you'll hear me here. If there's any pain back, listen. If there's any pain back, then grace is no longer grace. See, it's either paid in full or you got to pay. It's one or the other. The power of grace is it's full and complete or it's not at all. You you never give a little. There's no such thing as a a little grace because either grace is grace or it's not grace at all. Either it's paid in full or you have to pay. To their We'll be your servants, Joseph says. I said it to you 17 years ago. Let me tell you again. Do not be afraid. Am I in God's place? 
As for you, you meant evil against me. See, 17 years later, I'm not saying that what you did to me now 30 years ago still wasn't wrong. It was wrong. It was evil. And it was against me. But God. See, it's always, forgiveness is always rooted in, but God. But God. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Therefore, don't be afraid. Just just for a moment. Out of Joseph's story, into your story. So many years, I was afraid. Jesus, please forgive me, and then I do wrong. Oh, no. Ever had that fear? Oh, no. Oh, Jesus, forgive me. And then I do wrong. Because I have a profound capacity to be the windshield. You do too, by the way. And then, oh no. And Joseph says to his brothers what Jesus is saying to you, to me. Don't be afraid. I'll provide for you. I have provided for you. How? Through what I did by taking your punishment in your place. It's either all grace or there is no grace. I'll provide for you, little one. So he comforts them and he speaks kindly to them. And I love this. Remember back Genesis 39, 21? God was doing kindly to Joseph. And what's Joseph do? He does kindly to those who did wrong to him. He simply wants them to know grace can only be received by faith. What do I mean by faith? We've defined what grace is. What is it? It's God not giving us what we deserve, but giving us what we don't deserve. Giving us life instead of judgment. Forgiveness instead of payback. That's grace. It can only be received by faith. What's that mean? It simply means, hey, I admit I deserve the punishment. But I believe you have taken it. And all I can do is say, thank you. And not live a life of pain back but live a life of loving the one who paid for me. See, that's not payback. That's loving the one who paid for me. I know you know it. Many of you have heard this, maybe for 17 years. But have you ever received it? I want to invite a friend, Steve, to come on up. And, and Steve is going to share the change in his life from when he, he's got a, yeah. Right here, Steve, you want to use this? All right. He's going to simply share with you the change in his life from having heard it to actually receiving it. Well, good morning. Uh, So today I want to share with you guys how I came to know the true saving grace of Jesus Christ. You see, I spent the last 30 years of my life with a false sense of salvation. As a kid, I had heard uh, bits and pieces about God and Jesus, but my home life was far from Christ-centered. There were frequent arguments, alcoholism, violence, and just regular unrest. I was desperate for peace, and one evening I was sitting in a tent tent revival service listening to a preacher proclaim the greatness of Jesus. During this service, he asked who in the gathering had not yet placed their faith in Christ. So I raised my hand, was led in a prayer, and was told that I was saved. Walking out of the service that evening, nothing really felt different. And as time went on, there really was nothing different. In fact, that was probably the last church service I attended for many years. 
Upon moving back to the Jacksonville area in 2009, my family and I began attending CFC full-time. A short time later, on the brink of divorce, I began biblical counseling here at CFC. I was increasing in my knowledge of the scriptures, but not really growing in relationship with the Lord. Well, that divorce would eventually come a few years later. However, God continued to show me favor when he placed a godly woman named Amanda in my life. We were married in 2016, all seemed to be going well. I had a beautiful wife, three great kids, and my career was progressing smoothly, and I was a member of a great church body. Then came the summer of 2019. I allowed myself to be entangled in sin. I knew what I was doing was wrong, but continued to succumb to temptation. I was being utterly selfish in my desires to please me. Having made a mess of my life, I returned again to biblical counseling here at CFC, and one of my weekly homework assignments was to read and meditate over 2 Corinthians 13.5, in which the author is instructing, instructing the members of the church body in Corinth to examine their lives to determine whether or not there's evidence of any true, genuine saving faith. I was also given a handout with two lists. List one consisted of actions that neither prove nor disprove one's faith. This, this list contains things like attending church, having scriptural knowledge, taking part in religious activities, having an active role in ministry, being convicted of sin, assurance of salvation, and a time of decision. List two consisted of actions that showed authentic salvation and a relationship with Christ. This list included things like a love for God, repentance from sin, humility, devotion to God's glory, continual prayer, selfless love, separation from the world, spiritual growth, and obedient living. I was instructed to give an example of how each of these characteristics was evident in my life. I spent a week going through the list, and with each passing day, I became more and more deflated. I was able to complete list one rather easily. However, list two crushed me. I could not list anywhere that these fruits were evident in my life. Sitting in my next counseling session, I felt defeated, embarrassed, and angry. After believing I was a Christian for nearly 30 years, correction, after believing I was a saved Christian for nearly 30 years, there I sat having to admit that my life showed no evidence of any kind of relationship with Christ other than knowing who he was. I was not saved, but I knew I needed God desperately. So I bowed my head and I admitted that I was a sinner and broken and in need of his saving grace. I believe that Jesus was beaten and tortured and bore the burden of my sins, that he was put to death on the cross, but that he was resurrected three days later, that after his time here on earth, he ascended into heaven where he's now seated at the right hand of God. So that evening, August 5th, 2020, I became a new creation. Since then, I have a new hope in life. I have a hunger for the word, not just for knowledge alone, but also to grow closer to God. I pray frequently throughout my day and I have a love for God that did not exist before. My desire is to now live a life obedient to God's commandments. Thank you. That takes guts. It takes guts to acknowledge sin, to make it a mess of your life. It takes guts to acknowledge, though, that Though many of you would have seen Steve around for years and just as soon because he comes to church, because he does religious activity, that he has a relationship with God. But he shared what he shared simply because it's more than possible, it's probable that there are any number of you who are listening right now who would go, I've always lived more of a I need to perform to earn God's favor than to simply believe and receive grace because when we become listen when we become recipients of grace grace changes us not from I need to do more to please him. It changes us to I love the one who took 
the mess of my life and forgave me and restored me and made me new. So I don't know what the Holy Spirit is doing in your heart right now. But if there is in your heart right now that sense, that might be my story. I want to invite each of us to bow right now and, and to before the Lord. No one else watching not concerned about what anybody else is thinking, only in this moment concerned that God hear you cry out to him. God, I need your grace. I don't deserve it. That's why I need it. Would you admit to God, I do deserve your punishment and wrath but I believe you have poured it out on Jesus. I believe that his death on the cross was payment for me. I receive that as a free gift right now, God. I believe and receive your grace. It's no magical exact words. It's simply admitting your sin, believing in Jesus, crying out for him to save you. Father in heaven, we thank you that when we cry out to you that your forgiveness is full and complete. It's not just our past, it's our past, our present, and our future. That our shackles are no more. That we are set free from the penalty of sin, set free from the power of sin we could now live new lives of loving you. I pray that that would be the work of your spirit in each heart this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The difference is so profound to go from trying to work out a life that maybe I'll be forgiven to receiving forgiveness. One of the demonstrations, watch, that we have been recipients of grace is that we, that we give grace. Why? Because now we are children of God. And we are gracious as he is gracious. And we forgive as we've been forgiven. See, there's no question that every one of us have been wronged. But I wanna, I wanna implore you, if you have believed in Jesus, if you are genuinely born again, that you would decide this morning I can no longer withhold forgiveness for that person 
because I have been forgiven by God. I'm not going to make them pay. I'm going to bless them and help them and be to them what Jesus has been to me. See, church, the church is the people of God. It's not a place, church. One of the most powerful demonstrations that we have been born again is that we forgive. We don't hold a grudge. We believe, hey, it was wrong, but God, but God, but God. And I'm going to let forgiveness flow. It's not going to stop with me. It's going to flow through me. And people will experience Jesus through you when they experience forgiveness from you. That is the power of forgiveness received and given. So in a continual response to the scriptures this morning, I genuinely want to call you to take a step that maybe you've not taken before and that you that you would be for God right now in your seat that you would tell him Lord I confess I've withheld from others what you freely gave to me and I change my mind right now because I believe in you and I believe that even in the wrong done to me I believe you've been working and you are working and you will continue to work you see we don't wait till we feel like forgiving we forgive because we've been forgiven because we believe but God And I pray, Lord, that that this season, that conversations that men and women all across this room, north and online, everyone who is hearing and responding to you would bless others and serve others, that there would be a new expression of the profound love of God that would fill this earth with the glory of God, the gift of forgiveness that we would walk in the beauty of that great love. Thank you, Lord, for your indwelling spirit that gives us all that we need to do all that you've said. Would you stand with me now and let's declare together that we have been set free to love as we've been loved. Let's declare this.